Hi, I'm Carrie Adams and you're listening to Carrie's Corner. Here we talk to the movers and shakers, the drinkers, the dreamers, the people who make it happen in the liquor industry around the world. So, let's get sipping. Russell to my Carrie's Corner platform today and hi thanks so much for making time to join us on the Biz News Carrie's Corner platform. It's great to see you Carrie and a real pleasure. I know that it's early in the morning you are much better at all this technology than I have been. I've got a sound engineer and I still can't get it right. I hate it. I can't stand it. So just for everybody else we're on YouTube and we are doing a podcast and we're going to go out on FMR this evening. So we're doing too many things at once, which is probably why the, the studio bombs out. And I tell you why I wanted to catch up with you. I'm busy doing a few things, not a few, a lot of profiles on the entire Cape wine industry. Because I do think that at a time in the world where we are all questioning so many things, not least of which history, which I do think it's a bit of a daft thing to try and question history um, or change it because we can't change it, but we can learn from it. And I think that we're in an era probably precipitated by COVID where everybody's feeling frustrated. The world has been put on hold. A lot of us are in limbo and a lot of people are looking at their lives, particularly in South Africa and saying, I've got this miserable blooming life. And look at this fantastically wealthy, successful, previously advantaged situation down in the Western Cape, which is the Cape wine industry. And to a large extent, they would be right in many things. We know that. But this is not a program about unpacking the negative. This is a program about profiling the positive and the unbelievable tenacity, hard work, skill and ingenuity that many people brought to the wine industry without the privilege having been given to them in the first place, other than the fact that they could actually own it in the first place. That was your own only privilege that you had. So I've spoken too much. You're Anthony Hamilton Russell. You're part of that group of people who has made such a massive impact on the South African wine industry. Um, You are the quintessential gentleman in the Cape wine industry. You're just gorgeous. One of my oldest mates, one of my most brilliant examples of how to market a brand. And you didn't inherit your wine farm. 
Tell us a little bit of background about <clears throat> you and how you got to where you are. Right, well, very briefly, like a lot of young South Africans in the mid-80s, finishing university at WITS, um, the country didn't look good. Uh, apartheid was kind of reaching its nemesis. Um, the future looked bleak. And a lot of us decided uh, basically to leave and go and build a life elsewhere. And I left and uh, to go to the UK. I did a degree at Oxford University. And after that, um, worked for an investment bank, an American investment bank in London, and inevitably went off to business school in America following that, came back to London, did management consulting. And I, like many South Africans who had sort of exiled themselves at the tail end of apartheid, um, I just was very homesick. There are lots of things that resonate in, in Africa and in South Africa that you just can't find elsewhere. So you might be materially well off in your adopted country, but you, you're emotionally not as well off. Uh, Mandela was released in 1990, and that opened the door to me uh, to return. It looked like there was a future for the country. And um, in 1991, uh, my father, who had, I guess, with, with the wine farm that he had so successfully founded, um, actually, he bought the land for 58,000 rand, just to put Did it he? in perspective. <laughs> built, How big is it? And built everything up from there. It's 170 hectares, and not all of it farmed, obviously. But um, it, it, it was a, a very rundown piece of ground, not at all productive. And I'm proud of him for initiating the beginnings of an industry in our area, which has indirectly done great things for the town, created a lot of employment, and really been a force for good. Um, but it was in trouble. And, um, it wasn't you know, a wine farm. 90- and it wasn't a wine <clears throat> farm. There weren't really vineyards there to speak of, were there? No, my, my father my father basically pioneered the area for viticulture. And um, by the time I came back, it was really to try and um, manage the business out of a very, very difficult situation. It had never really been something he expected to make money out of. It was his passion project. He worked in advertising very successfully, and that basically funded it. And um, that needed to change. It was my sole means of income. The total turnover of the business when I took over was less than what I was being paid in London, and I wasn't being paid that much. <laughs> we proudly, uh, you know, we had 33 employees. So it was a big lifestyle change for me. And fortunately, with export markets opening up with Mandela's release, um, you know, we had to weather that incredibly difficult period between 1991 and the first democratic elections in 94. It was a very troubled time for the country mm-hmm. economically. And terribly uh, volatile. We were all sitting on a time Very right? volatile. Mm. <laughs> and, um, you know, I thought literally the, the two suits I came back from London with, I thought I better look after these because I'm not going to be able to get any more. <laughs> and that's, Ever. that's how it was. But I'd, I would have rather lived like that, happy, emotionally, doing something worthwhile than carrying on earning a lot in another country, you know, for a, uh, for a larger company. So anyway. Do you still think like that? <laughs> I, I, no, no. I bought the business from my uh, family in 1994 and uh, just to avoid any succession issues and just to be, you know, very clear on the ownership. I don't think these things work when they're divided amongst non-working family members. It's, it's, a, it's a passion project. It's a terrible business. I mean, the, the economics of wine farming are not attractive. No, that's <laughs> what we need to show everybody. <laughs> You're not going to get rich becoming a wine farmer. <laughs> So anyway, that, that's how I got here. And, um, you, you know, if, if it hadn't been for my father 
starting that passion project, it wouldn't have crossed my mind to do it. And um, and I guess if it hadn't been for me, we might have easily just have been sold at some point. So, so Anthony, and, interesting that. <laughs> what did you study at Wits University? I did, um, well, I did botany, zoology, genetics, um, but my, my majors were genetics and, and zoology. And um, then, and so that must have pointed you in the direction. I mean, I'm just trying to find out how you found this passion no. in the soil. Uh, there, um, was, there was Everything yeah, there else was, you did was business related. <laughs> nothing pointing me. Um, I, I think, you know, just because I did do management consulting for a while for a strategic consulting firm, Bain & Company, and, you know, we were all young, fresh out of business school with MBAs, admittedly good MBAs. And we would look into a business for two weeks and then, you know, try and advise a chief executive who had been in the industry for 30 years what to do. Yeah. <laughs> so it was, um, <laughs> which felt wrong. But uh, the, the point is when you very deeply engage yourself with something for any period of time, you can become fairly expert on it quite quickly. And I'm now 30 years in uh, running Hamilton Russell Vineyards and of a temperament that wants to understand absolutely everything in every aspect of the business. So, yes. Yeah. You, if anybody uh, listening or watching has been to Hamilton Russell, it, it has to be one of the most beautiful farms. I've always said there are a few bays along the Cape Coast of South Africa, or along the coast, yeah, the Atlantic coast of, of South Africa that are north-facing. And that makes them the most beautiful bays geographically in the world because their climate is just perfect. Plettenberg Bay is one of them. Hermanus is one of them. Walker Bay is another one. I think there are only about four. The rest of them point the wrong way. So they get ghastly weather. They get hammered by the, by the elements. And the views are not nearly as gorgeous. They're not nearly as exclusive and, and just completely perfect geographically as what Walker Bay is. You set about changing the sort of region. I'll say region because it's the layman's way of thinking of where Hamilton Russell comes from. Call it's an area, yeah. Yeah, it's the area. Um, Walker Bay and Hermanus is really, when we think Hamilton Russell, that's what we think. But it's actually that beautiful Hilmolinada Valley, which is heaven and earth, and it is heaven and earth, which is probably why you went racing back. Um, the thought process behind your changing of the appellation? Yeah, well, it was, um, you know, literally when I came back, we were the only people making wine in the area. Bushard Finlayson was yet to release their first wine, an ex-winemaker of ours. We currently have four of our ex-winemakers in the area doing what we do. So um, my analogy is a little bit like if you run a very successful restaurant and your your chef leaves to open up next door with the same menu and then another one and, and another, just one, be so, and another just one. Just be so chuffed. <laughs> yeah. It's initially, initially it's a little irritating because you had the whole thing to yourself. <clears throat> but then after a while you realize that you're building something in the area, that there's an industry developing with a focus uh, which which might have that focus might have been initiated by perhaps our early success with Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, but it's a thing you become proud of, and now the feeling is the more the better. We actually want to encourage even more people to come into the Himalayanada area and make Pinot and Chardonnay. And we're very thrilled that uh, Buchanan's has made a significant investment, and Gottfried Mock is going to be making great Pinot and Chardonnay up the road from us. No, so that's another. What do they want to call that? Do we know? That's Cup Maritime. 
And um, but so my thinking behind the creation of the the Himalanada uh, wine appellations was Walker Bay was our defining wine ward, the smallest unit of appellation back you know in the early days. My father worked with the authorities to delimit that appellation in 1981 to accommodate the release of the first Hamilton Russell Vineyards wines in 1981. And it was an area of unusually strong maritime influence, but it did encompass many different soil types. By the time I got back, um, I could see that it was going to eventually lose relevance as the smallest unit of appellation. Mm. Bot River was starting to bottle and make wines with a slightly different focus to us. The success there was very much Shannon, Syrah, and I, I think Pinotage too. Mm. And then Stanford was growing up as an area um, as well and doing its own thing. And we wanted our appellation to indicate a certain homogeneity of style and also a degree of varietal focus. So we knew eventually the Walker Bay would lose that. Mm. And um, I wanted to, to break away and create smaller, more relevant units of appellation, particularly for our property. And I, um, I approached uh, Dave Johnson, who, who had, uh, of Newton Johnson at the time, who had very close links in the industry. He had worked for Stellenbosch Farmers Winery. And um, he knew his way around all of that. And I said, let's, um, let's get together and see if we can't have Walker Bay turned into a larger unit of appellation, a district. And that would give us the right to create wine wards, the smallest unit of appellation within it. And we did that. And eventually it panned out that there were three very distinct Himalanada named appellations, all contiguous. So we're Himalanada Valley. And then as you drive up the valley geographically, the soil type changes from our heavy clay, uh, which defines our particular style, Mm -hmm. to decomposed granite, a slightly lighter structured soil with a very different expression of Pinot and Chardonnay. And then just as you leave the valley, geographically speaking, over the watershed, there's a small area higher up, a little further from the sea, called Himalanada Ridge. And there they move back onto these heavy clay soils but there's a different expression of Pinot Noir again. And what's been wonderful to see, we did this back in 04. We had the Walker Bay turned into a district. Mm. We began the process in in probably 02, 03. And by 06, we had two of the Himalanada appellations created and in 09, Himalanada Ridge. This process is underway in Elgin at the moment. So we've got a real head start on the industry and it's underway in in the Swatland. And Anthony, you sort of, from what I can gather, you you really did um, demarcate those areas um, in terms of the soil changes in order to, as you say, express that exact soil type that is on your farm or in your ward or in your area. And I think that that brings me to the next question for you is that when I, I actually met your father a couple of times when I first came back from England and Tim Hamilton Russell was a gorgeous guy. He, he just was, he was larger than life. I needn't tell you about all of that, but we're talking about you. So we're not going to say anything more about Tim, but Tim, um, the style of wine that came from Hamilton Russell in those days is quite different to the style that you finally curved your wine into. Um, I think it went on a long, slow curve and you finally got to a taste that is, for me, 
not that I want to pretend I'm in France, but it's very, very um, reminiscent of possibly pomade, that beautiful velvetiness that you get, which is what we get from pomade, and deep, deep ripe violets with with soft tannins um, of volne, really. So that's sort of, for me, the style that I think you, you sent your wine in the direction of. That must have come from an enormous amount of input and learning and intellectual capital that you must have got for yourself that says, we've got these kind of soils, we need to farm this way, we need to plow that way, we need to plant this way. It doesn't just happen, does it? No, it doesn't just happen. The first thing I'd say about wine style is I think you have a, some degree of influence on where it ends up, but ultimately you're being schooled by your own climatic conditions, by your own sites and soils in a direction that best suits it. So probably the most important thing I did, uh, right uh, almost up front, um, because the business was so small, you know, it had never traditionally made any money. It had kind of washed its own face at best, maybe bought some groceries over Christmas holidays, but (laughs) it wasn't a... a thing one looked to financially. I wanted to change that. And I decided that rather than carry on making 11 different wines, working with eight grape varieties and buying in grapes, to just see what we did best and do more of it. And back at that time, it was very clear that Pinot Noir and Chardonnay were the strong hands. And the way we look at it is we didn't set out to make Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, at least I didn't. We looked to the varieties that would have the most beautiful thing to say about our particular sites and soils. Mm. And those turned out to be, you know, one red Pinot Noir, one white Chardonnay, no reserves, no second labels. So that focus has been very important for us. Needless to say, once that decision was made, endless amounts of effort went into Mm. refining those two wines. We didn't have a small amount of a special reserve to satisfy our egos with high (laughs) scores and high prices we didn't have a second label to hide our mistakes uh it is really just one one of each and and that has been a a, a pattern of business operation i've applied to our other two properties ashbourne and southern right so in terms of the style um that required replanting everything Uh, a because of leaf roll virus Mm. b because of the clones that were initially used and uh, so in my 30 years now, we've replanted by equivalent hectares the farm 1.65 times over. Oh, wow. And just <laughs> just to see what type of impact that has financially. Nowadays, in today's terms, uh, bear in mind the farm was initially purchased for 58,000 rand. If we plant a hectare of vineyards, it's a couple of hundred thousand rand at least uh, just to buy the vines, the poles, to put in the irrigation. If we replace a hectare of vineyards, which is what we do, you would pay, you know, 80,000 rand to pull it out. You would then rest it for two years, um, spending time and money on upgrading the soils, planting beneficial cover crops in. At the end of those two years, then you'd spend your 250 odd thousand rand to plant the vines. Then you'd wait four years or three years if you're lucky for the first small crop, then you would spend money making that wine yeah, and then you would, you'd release it. So it's, it's a seven-year turnaround mm. uh, with massive amounts of investment in a country with actually fairly high real interest rates. Mm. Everything we've done has had to be with retained earnings or borrowed money. Mm. There's been no outside money coming in. And um, so I'm, I'm proud of having done that without stopping to consider 
how expensive that upgrade those upgrades are. We're not just trying yeah, to maximize start, income. If you start loss. trying to think, <clears throat> if you start trying to add up the loss of income for those four or five years that the vines are not actually producing, that's and the main extrapolate point. That, that is overwhelmingly the biggest yeah, one. You can't yeah. even. Yeah. Um, and it makes no no business sense. If I was your bank manager and you came to me and said, "I need to borrow, I need to borrow ten or fifteen million rand for a hectare of Pinot Noir," I would say, "Anthony, go home and smoke your socks." You know, yeah. so it's not that well, easy to raise money bank, on the back a, of that. A bank is a is is a money shop. In short, I mean, they they make their money selling. Money. money to other people <laughs> and um, so they love us because we've bought a lot from them <laughs> well i always said when we were i was involved at, at trunkfeld vineyards as you know right at the outset and yeah. there was a there was a time where we were we were looking to to preserve names for future vintages going ahead and everybody was getting very sort of romantic and waxing lyrical. And right on the sea there is the Agullis Bank, as you know, where all the ships used to used to wreck. And I, they wanted to register the name Agullis Bank. And I said, I really do think that we should, in deference to Standard Bank, we should register <laughs> Standard Bank as well. Yeah. <laughs> because no, we had the same. It was brand um, new. I, I think most most of my peers in the industry have some degree of investment um, that is not bank debt, yeah. um, either from you know a wealthy family business or outside passive investors putting. So, so there's no pressure on cash flow by having to pay that interest back yeah. regularly. Yeah. We've avoided that luckily, and Thank um, goodness. I know we've made banks a lot of money. We've always paid them back. There's always been enough equity as land values have grown and risen and our value has grown and risen uh, for them not to have to worry too much. And I think that the one good thing about our banking system is they're incredibly cautious. Yeah. I think they, they're that much less likely to overlend than than banks in other countries. Well, I think and, we and were the only people in- only people who didn't crash in that big bank crash a little few little while ago. South Africa was fine. Thank goodness. Well, we can- just on that point, because a lot of people have asked us how COVID has hit us with the shutdown on sales of alcohol in this country. Mm-hmm. And it's been much easier to weather this particular storm than it was the post-2008 period. Really Because during COVID, um, we basically had fantastic exchange rates uh, for mm-hmm. our exports. Mm-hmm. We had lowish interest rates, and the banks were still on certain terms willing to loan. After 2008, by about 2011, uh, the exchange rate was terrible, six and a half to the dollar versus 14.8 or something to the dollar. So we made half as much exporting than usual. Interest rates went up. And and nobody really lending anything. Yeah, the banks were very... They didn't want to lend money. So that was far harder to weather than this period when really we're not allowed to sell wine locally. No one's stopping us exporting. And also, we used to deferred income. Yes. You know, they didn't actually come and take our wine away from us. Yeah. Uh, we still had it. So all they were saying is, you can't sell it today, but maybe you can sell it later. Yes. Or you can sell it. You can sell it anywhere else, but just not here. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Poor restaurants. If if you have to, if you can't sell a table, that's gone forever. It's yeah. not like you've got it stored at the back to sell. You know. So 
we, we, we really feel for the hospitality industry yeah. and, and many in the wine industry, but I think at least no one was confiscating our product. Yeah. Uh, you know, we, we, we still kept our wine. That brings me to the <clears> next <throat> question that you need to elaborate and not necessarily give all your secrets away because I think in your dotage you can possibly run a course on wine marketing and advertising 101 and you'll probably make billions more than you ever did out of wine farming. But... For many, many years, and I travel overseas, we can't at the moment, but I travel overseas a lot, and I'm always so heartened. Any restaurant that I walk into, there is always a bottle of Hamilton Russell on the wine list somewhere. You have done, not only at home, but in America, in the UK, in Europe, I haven't been to Australia, but you have done the most amazing job, Anthony, of getting this Hamilton Russell brand out there and not only just getting it out there as any old brand. It's not your common or garden barter toughy. Do you know what I mean? It's, it is it is a beautifully handcrafted product that carries, if we had such a thing in South Africa, it would have a royal warrant. It would be Her Majesty's royal one. I'm sure it would be. Um, so you've managed to do this entire marketing and selling exercise around the globe on a limited, um, what's the word I'm looking for? I've had COVID. I've got this COVID yield. Yield is the word. You have a budget. (laughs) (laughs) I've got this COVID brain. I keep on remembering the first letter of every word. On a limited yield, I mean, you don't buy in grapes for your Hamilton Russell no. Um, label. No. So I I have just done what you've done now. Take 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 somebody who's gone and bought themselves a, the equivalent of a 58,000 rand piece of land in the Western Cape and they have nothing and nobody and no real clue as to how to do it. They are going to try and market a brand. They're going to try and get a, a name up and running that they can go into a restaurant and say, I want you to buy a few hundred cases of this Hamilton Russell, please. Mm. How do they do that? Well, it's, you know, how long do you have? That's, that's <laughs> no, yes this is yes. quick. You've just got to um, crazy. In, in short, the, the quickest um, thing you have to get to is, is uh, what your site and soil allows you to do really, really well. Um, too many people before exports opened up tried to be something for everyone. You had to segment our small local market vertically. You had to make things at different price points, different styles. And people tended to make something that people wanted rather than something that they were particularly good at doing. And um, it meant these fragmented ranges. No one fully understood what that person stood for. Um, And we made the decision to rather be a producer for the world and do only what we did best. So we segmented the world horizontally rather than a small local market vertically. Mm. And and getting to that situation of really fully understanding the merits of your wine. A lot of people that own wine farms, you know, look to platter scores. They look to uh, trophy awards uh, to decide whether the wines are good. If If you're relying on third parties to to yeah. tell you if you're hitting the mark or not, you're, you're in trouble. Mm-hmm. You need to have your own vision and your own palate. And I think where Hamilton Russell resonated, it was uncannily classically styled. 
Um, it, it was, you know, often confused with red and white burgundy, but not nearly as expensive. Mm. And, and that helped. And people completely understood our simple message. One Pinot Noir, one Chardonnay, made in that classic style. And it, it was like that for a certain reason. They knew exactly where the grapes were coming from. They knew the people behind it. It had some degree of integrity all the way through. Mm. Now, if you go through five or six of your top South African wine producers mentally, you'll realize that it's hard just in one quick sentence to describe what they stand for. Mm. Um, you know, you have to be able to do that. And we, we're I about... I think you really are one of the few <laughs> who has successfully made your name synonymous with two single grape varieties. I don't know of anybody else. And, you know, to try and tie my whole story back for any of my young people who are really, really, I'm so desperately trying to help um, and get people, young people excited in the wine industry in a way that we all were when we entered it. Stupid, but excited. Um, sometimes innovation and 21st century is not always the best way to go. And I am a Tyrannosaurus Rex, and I openly admit to being one and a, and a Luddite or whatever, but sometimes this so-called innovation, if you unpack it, it's exactly what Europe was doing hundreds of years ago with their, with their wines, weren't they? Yes. I mean, I often think uh, the best innovation is often a return to the past. Yes, <clears throat> and, 100%. Um, what, the, the, way, the way I view ourselves is we, I mean, look at me. I, I look like an old, um, you know, codger. We love tradition. I yeah. absolutely love that about wine. That's the mystical and the spiritual side of it to me. I get very put off by too much technology and screw caps and modern, clean, this and that. Yeah, me um, too. However, I describe us as modern traditionalists. I, I was visiting a producer in, in Barolo, um, Franco Massalino, who I respect enormously. And using modern attitudes and ideas and technology, he returned to the traditional way of doing things mm. and made wines of great purity and beauty. And I would say that that's mm. our approach. We don't hesitate to use science and technology, but not to force the grapes to be anything other than their truest self. And a lot so of our techniques well put. are all the hills. <laughs> it's exactly what I'm trying. It's exactly what I'm trying to get to. So you know, less is more, old is good sort of thing. I really do believe that rather than trying to get too, too clever about everything, if we just go backwards and and maybe put a little bit more time and effort and, as you say, add a touch, a splash of technology, um, older is is better. I have to say it. It is it's better. Really you, you're not going to be shot down in flames like you can't believe about being <coughs> no. pennies, but... I really I mean, didn't all, 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 our, all our innovations in the vineyards are basically, you know, moving organic. We brought that into our area. Um, the, the, the permanent cover crops, the species diversity within the vineyards, all of these things you would have found watching monks farm special Absolutely. sites about 900 years ago. Mm. Um, but, Carrie, you raise an important point, younger people and what does the industry sort of mean to them. Um, I have noticed with my daughters that, it's very important to them that what they do um, is a force for good in some way. Yes. The the purpose, 
and and the fallout and the benefit of what they do must be apparent. It's mm. no longer just about maximizing salary. Mm. And what's lovely about the wine industry, not only is it very um, people intensive, uh, where you can create jobs relatively easily <clears throat> in the industry. Mm. Very engaged with nature and conservation in, in a huge way. Well, you've got and, a massive um, reserve on your property, haven't you? We do. We are um, WWF conservation champions, and we take that very seriously. But you know, one of the passions is, uh, that our team has is that whole conservation ethic, and we're working very hard in our area to join up private nature reserves, surround the whole of the Himalayas with basically private conservation. I think we've got now close to twenty endangered species in our nature reserves that we we'd look after and cherish, and. That's amazing. Um, it's good that I can wake up in the morning and believe that the wine is bringing joy to people, the process of making it's employing people, creating jobs. Um, it makes people happy consuming it and that the process of making it is actually beneficial to the environment and improving it and also creating a tremendous tourist potential for the country. Collectively, the wine industry does an awful lot, and that's one of the big employers as well. So I, I just think it's it's a it's a force for good. I, I don't really see any harm of it. And the other good thing is every scrap of the money you have is put straight back in an asset you can't take to the grave with you. Mm. You know, it's not in a Swiss bank account. It's all a little it's bit of about face, really, if you think of it. <laughs> it you know, the one thing, though, and <laughs> so. the one thing that I have to add, and I keep saying it, um, I'm privileged enough now, as you know, to be working alongside Alec Hogg and his business use team. And I think that it's become ever more apparent to me that the success of a business is 100% um, reliant upon the team that makes that makes it happen. But the yes. success of the team in turn, is 100% reliant upon the team leader. And you have been an absolutely amazing team leader at Hamilton Russell. You and Olive, who is your wife and business partner, she's an amazing woman. She's brought such an air of femininity, intellect, and light to that farm. Talita, who I've known forever, who drives that bus like a blooming Nazi conductor. She really, really does. Emil, the new winemaker, well, I say new, he's been there for a while. And anybody, yeah, I mean, Pearl, who you've got up in Gauteng doing your sales, anybody else I might have left out. But I just see a cohesive team led by a wonderfully spiritually intellectual person. That has to be the success of that farm. You walk onto, do you still call it Braemar? Is the house just called Braemar? The house is Braemar. The original farm name. You walk yes. into that Braemar house and you just get this air of being unbelievably privileged and special to be there. Not in a not in a hobnobby, ghastly sort of poncy way. It's too beautiful for speech, and you've managed to get that under the radar class. And it's not even shabby chic because it's not shabby at all. It's just blooming chic. You and all of absolutely got it right. You really, really have. You've got two or three tips, even one fabulous tip for somebody who wants to do what you've done. Well, uh, you, you mentioned the building a team. I mean, I couldn't do this without them. And, and eventually they become so indispensable to you that you shudder to think um, what would happen if they left. 
So um, I, we can't pay as much as they could earn elsewhere. They're always going to be of high value to somebody else. Yes. So they have to have that sense of purpose and um, a sense of being that force for good, a belief in what we stand for. So you make the point about the team leader. I think uh, the most important decision the team leader makes really is is what direction to sail in. They might not be the person setting the actual sail with a hand on the, the rudder or anything like that or tightening all the ropes and, and, and making everything function beautifully, but they are making sure that you're not sailing over a cliff, that your broad strategy is is correct. Mm. And then, you know, we we a very unego driven environment. I see them as colleagues. I don't see them as employees. I hate the word boss. And um, they they become very close like friends. Talita has been with us 30 years. My financial manager, who's indispensable, has been with us 25 years. Our vineyard manager is coming up for 17 years. And I haven't always got that right. I mean, in the early days, I was very dictatorial. It was tough times. I was a, very difficult to work for and very tough on people. And uh, correspondingly, we, we had relatively high staff turnover at that point. Well, now and, you would have been I've taken come. to the CCMA every single week, every month. <laughs> it's another message I've, that I've me, this old <laughs> granny, sending out to the youth of today. Stop feeling sorry for yourselves. Roll <clears> your <throat> sleeves up and go and do hard work. That's what it takes. really does, doesn't yeah. it? Well, we've, we've, we've got a very motivated uh, team and, and they, they're wonderful. And we had a person complete their 41st harvest with us this year, um, which is incredible. And um, another couple have retired, having put in many, many, many years of work. So, and, and we've shaped this place. It was open Renosterfeld in a rundown farm, and collectively everyone has turned it into what we'd like to believe is, you know, um, a very successful uh, wine estate. So, it is. Um, it is definitely one of the work. huge success stories, and it forms one of the building blocks of my um, my sort of twilight thrust in the industry, where I really feel that I need to try and put together a book, a movie, um, a whole story of the wonderful people who have made this industry work. And we need to start working out ways to hand it over to the next generation of wonderful people who are going to do likewise. Anthony, thank you so much. As ever, you are just, we, we could have chatted for so much more, couldn't we? We haven't spoken about the wine. Uh, we'll, as soon as we can get up to Johannesburg again, when we've got, we'll come and see you. We always love chatting. Please. And we can actually do a follow up on the Biz News podcast channel as well, because I think that if, if it piques somebody's interest, um, I do get people writing to me saying, won't you chat to Anthony Hamilton Russell again and ask him this or ask him that? I get lots of people who contact me. So there's always space for a follow-up. But for the meantime, I'm okay. sorry that one of your puppies died. I'm so sorry I saw that. Uh, lots uh, of love to both was, of you. Uh, 11 years, 8 months and 1 day old is a great day. And so oh. I think we gave her a bonus. As good a life and an innings as you can expect from a great day. And oh, the nice yeah. thing is we have a little graveyard on the property for the dogs. They have their own crosses with their names on. Oh. And um, it, it is, we've got quite good at this over the years, I, I shudder to say. But literally the vet comes to the house. There's a small <laughs> injection. I, I asked him if he'd see me out as well. It looks so painful. <laughs> and me, please. And, <laughs> and then, and then. 
already the bucky's waiting um, a massive oh. blanket to wrap them in the grave has already been dug you know they get lowered in and i shovel the sand in myself for the help of uh, you know our, our chap that helps us around the house and um it's very quick and easy and beautiful and dignified and i hope i go that way yeah we all do well lots of love to you both and have a fabulous weekend thank you so much for everything that you contribute to our amazing industry thanks Andy, very much thanks carrie you've been most kind bye thank you bye bye